Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Christina Holdridge teaches about being Jesus' famous women. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's really good to be here with you. My name's Christina. Like Erica said, I am Nate's wife, um, and uh, he's been leading the church here for Oh gosh, I should have like done the research. I think it's 14 or 15 years. So, but we've been, he's been on staff the whole time we've been married. So we've been a part of this church together for um, over 20 years or just about 20 years. So um, yeah, we've been a part of Calvary Monterey for a really long time and we've never done anything like this. So this is super cool. I'm really glad to be here with you. And I'm just looking forward to seeing, you know, what the Lord does with these times because... Um, he's good like that, and he's going to meet us here, and he's going to meet us in his word, and um, I'm just excited to have a, him talk to all of our hearts. So um, before I start out the teaching, um, well, two things. One, it is going to be a little longer than a Sunday morning, so get your big girl pants on. <laughs> it's not going to go forever or anything. We're going to stop. I have a timer going and everything, but these are meant to be a little bit more in-depth, and um, so it will go a little bit longer, um, so just be ready for that. I promise I will end on time, but just be ready for a little bit longer than a Sunday morning teaching. Um, but number two, I just kind of wanted to talk for a minute about what we're doing with these growth nights and kind of what the goal is, okay? So what are we doing and why? If the title is Jesus Famous Men and Women, and in a way that's sort of our goal, like to become like increasingly Jesus famous women. So what does it mean, right? Let's look at the first thing, the Jesus famous part. What does it mean that we're trying to be Jesus famous? It might almost sound weird to you, like I'm trying to make Jesus famous. What does, what does that actually mean? So I'm just going to actually quote my husband because he wrote something great about this and I can't say it any better. Here's what he says. He says, I want women to be so enraptured with Jesus that they respond to who he is with a full life of devotion to him. My vision of Jesus famous is that Christ becomes important and glorious and majestic and hallowed, exalted, appreciated, holy, set apart, transcendent, magnified, first to each of us individually, then in us collectively, and then through us to our community. When Jesus is seen in this way, when the fame of Christ is running through our souls, we will crave a life that honors him, and that's what I'm hoping for. That's what Jesus' famous women is. All right? So that's our goal. It sounds pretty great, right? Yeah, I want to do it too. So that's what we're talking about. Now, maybe if you're like me, you're also wondering, well, why separate, right? Like, Um, aren't the big truths of the Bible the same for men and women? Do we really need 10 different studies separate from men to talk about these topics? And I have come to the conclusion that yes, it is good. It's good for us to take time to study deeply and separately on what it means to be a Jesus famous woman. And my reason is, just real quick, it's because God intentionally made us women. 
And the reality of being a woman really colors our whole life. It makes us really have a different experience than men. So think about this with me for a second. If you're a Christian here tonight, you believe, we believe that there is a perfect God who created everything, right? And that in his final act of creation, in all of his wisdom, he intentionally and really specifically made two genders. Not one, not more than, one, than two, but two genders. Both are in his image and likeness, but it was on purpose. And he made us distinctly different. Uh, modern science has only proved what God knew all along, right? And that is that God made men and women really different. Originally, I had a whole list of really interesting fun facts for you about the differences between the biology of a man and a woman, but we don't have enough time to go into all that tonight. But I can tell you that in total, there are over 6,500 genetic differences between the male and the female body. That is a lot. So that tells me that our creator had an intentional design there. This, these 6,500 differences, they're not coincidental, and they're not accidental, and they're not bad because God is wise and perfect. They have to be intentional and good, and they proved to us that God made us women on purpose, right? So part of us gathering together is, what is that purpose? What is the purpose of us as women? So we're going to study that. And then it's impossible for all of these differences to really not affect our daily lives, like we already said. So yes, if you ask the question that I did as we first started talking about this whole Jesus famous study at my house, yes, the big truths of the Bible are the same for men and women. They're not different. But because our daily experiences are different, sometimes the applications or the implications of what those big truths mean, well, they're different for women than they are for men. And so meeting in a way like this, it gives us an opportunity to kind of dive in to some of that. And of course, as a side note, I know, and I hope you all know, that we do not think that the Bible says that all women are the same. I live in a house with three other girls, and they are completely different from one another. So just my own experience. But, I mean, I know that. We don't all love clothes or shopping or lipstick or babies or flowers or whatever the ridiculous stereotypes are. Whether they're positive or negative, no way. All women are not the same. We are unique individuals. But we have this, like, shared commonality of being women. And that was by God's design. So back to that question, why are we here and what are we doing? So we're here to look at being a lover of Jesus through the lens of our shared womanhood. Because though being a woman isn't all that we are, since God made us that way on purpose, we're going to study what that purpose is and how it colors our life as we seek to follow him with everything we are. All right? You guys ready? All right. So that's it. We don't have to go into that anymore any other time, okay? All right, let's go. This is now the teaching part. <laughs> okay, have you guys ever had something that you're just like kind of really in love with? And I'm not being super serious here. Like maybe it was a book you've read, like your favorite book. You just totally love your favorite book. Or maybe it's your favorite restaurant that you just love so much and you tell everybody about. Um, if I can be a little bit embarrassingly self-revealing here, at our home, we just totally, totally love our dog, Max. 
Now, I know that we do the normal things that dog owners do. Like we feed him and we snuggle him and we take him for walks and we make sure he's safe. But like, I feel like maybe you could tell me afterwards if all of you do this with your dogs too, but I feel like we go way beyond normal people. Um, we, like for example, we have this weird special voice that we use to talk to the dog that the whole family uses. And it's almost so weird that if you talk to him, Max, he's just this little pup. If you talk to him in like a regular voice in our home, everyone's like, what? what's wrong with you? Why are you talking in a regular voice to the dog? It's like, we're weird. Uh, we send videos and photos all the time to each other of the dog. Like when we're out of town, we're texting each other pictures of the dog. It's so weird, but we love it. <laughs> He is a constant topic of conversation in our house. I can't even tell you the number of times in one day we talk about our dog, Max. Something funny he did or some little thing that he's, I mean, we are just always talking about Max. The list honestly goes on and on. But here's my point. No one has ever had to tell the Holdridges, love Max. No one has ever had to tell us that. We just do. We watch him. And we hold him and we live with him day in and day out. And as a result, we're just like totally crazy about him. We're totally enamored with him. Everything he does is so endearing with him, to us just because we're with him. And in the section of scripture that we're going to study tonight, Jesus is going to kind of say the same thing about himself. In Mark 12, Jesus is going to actually, he's going to tell us to love him. He is. But before he tells us to love him, He's going to remind us of who he is and what he's done for us. And that order is really important. In order for us to become Jesus' famous women, women who are totally enamored with Christ and everything about him, and then we live in response to him, we've got to see him rightly. We have to see him for all that he is and all that he's done for us. And then a genuine love and worship can flow. So here's the order of what we're going to do tonight. First, we're going to spend the bulk of our time just looking at who God is. We're going to remind ourselves of why he's so worthy of our love. And then for a little bit, we're going to look at the life of Mary and see an example of this responsive, all-out devotion to Jesus. Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. That is where we're going to be. Mark 12, starting in verse 28. I'm just going to start reading. You can get there. Um, It says, Then one of the scribes came to him, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him and said, The first commandment of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment that's greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And no one dared to question him after that. So we're not going to get into that section of scripture as you might have, have kind of perceived. We're not going to get into the second section of scripture that talks about loving one's neighbor as oneself. And here's a little plug. We are going to talk about that at the women's gathering next Saturday morning. So if you want to come, we're going to talk about loving your neighbor and it's going to be great. But we're not going to talk about that tonight. We're just going to talk about loving God. But kind of in summary, there's a man, he's a scribe, and he overhears a religious discussion that Jesus is having with some important religious leaders. And he likes the way that Jesus answers, and so he asks him a question for himself. And he doesn't have any real idea who he's talking to. He has no idea he's talking to God in the flesh. So we'll kind of forgive him for his lack of understanding when he compliments Jesus on speaking the truth a little bit later. But anyway... So he asks Jesus, you know, what is the first or the most important commandment? Like, what is the most important thing that we should do with our life? And Jesus, who we know is God, he answers and says, the most important thing that you can do with your life is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. But wait, that's not actually all that Jesus said, right? It's like our eyes, our minds, they almost like skip over the first thing that he said and jump right to that second thing. But go back and look, notice something with me. In verse 29, in Jesus' response to what is the first commandment, what is the most important thing, Jesus answers him, the first commandment of all is, and look what comes next, it's not the action of love God with everything. What does it say? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That almost feels out of place. But he begins the first and greatest commandment with a reminder of who he is. And did you notice that the scribe, in his response to Jesus, he reiterates this idea. He says, you say it well. What does he say there? Uh, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and no other but he and to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the scribe reiterates the same thing that Jesus says. And Jesus says in verse 34 that the scribe answered wisely. So attached to this action of loving God is a call to see him well first. And I really think that God wants us to get this. After all, he said that this was the greatest commandment. Not these two things separate, these two things together. This is the greatest commandment. And in this order, these two things in this order. So it must be important to God. God's prioritizing knowing him and then loving him in response. So right now, we're going to spend some time reminding ourselves of who God is, of digging into knowing him. We're going to fix our eyes on him, and I think we're going to see a little bit more why he's so worthy of that all-consuming love that we'll talk about later. So who is God? Why is he worthy? Well, Jesus says two things about God here, sort of three. In his statement, that first statement, the first commandment is, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In that, he's saying 
The God of Israel is the only God. That's the first thing he's saying about God. The God of Israel is the only God. And he also says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. So the God of Israel is the only God, and he's our God. God is worthy of our love, our worship, our devotion, because he is the only God, and because he's our God. Well, we're going to talk for a second about a couple of things that I think make God God. They're not said right here in this passage of Scripture, but they're said all throughout Scripture. What makes God God? What makes God the only God? Jesus says it's true, but what makes him God the only God? I think one thing that really anchors us in this truth is that the Bible teaches that God has all power, all authority, all dominion over the whole earth. He created all things, and he is over all things. This is part of what makes him and only him God. Genesis tells us, right, that out of nothing, God made everything. And I know we know that, right? Like, I know. But take a second and think about it. All the breathtaking beauty of the world around us, all the complexity All the power and purpose and creation from absolutely nothing. God made that. And of course, he's the only one who ever has or ever could do that. Humanity has made some really incredible things, some really beautiful art and music and science and culture, but they're only ever mirroring our creator. They've never made something from nothing. They've never taken life, made life from total emptiness. And God didn't just create all things. God is over all things. And that's also what is part of what makes him and only him God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us that he made everything, that he's over everything. All of creation, all people, everything we see and we don't see, the whole spiritual realm, it's all under God's control. And we know, if we know the Gospels at all, that Jesus showed us this too, right? He showed it when he had power over sickness, when he had power over demons, when he had power over the created world, when he had power over death. Jesus showed us that he is over everything. Okay, so maybe this is just like a really basic truth and it feels a little too basic for you, and I get it. Even as I was preparing this, all these songs that I used to sing to my girls when they were toddlers started running through my head because it is a really basic truth. But sometimes a really basic truth is also a really deep truth. And I think when we really think about this, that God is over all things and and made all things, it can have a deep impact on our lives. So in one sense, I'm just going to encourage you to take time out this week. As you long to become a Jesus-famous woman, take time out this week to think about God's power, the intricacy, the wonder of the created world. You know the one who did that. Read a science book about human anatomy or the complexity of the ecosystem. I'm telling you, your faith will be stirred up. Your love for him will be stirred up. But this is meant to be personal too. 
I taught my girls songs about these truths because I wanted them to know our God is so great. Our God is so strong and so mighty. There is nothing our God cannot do because it was personal. I wanted them to know, hey, you lost a Barbie shoe? That's not too hard for God. He can help you with that. You're struggling to learn how to ride a bike? Man, God's able to help you. Your best friend moved away? God is strong enough and able enough and over everything. He can take care of that for you. So what does that truth mean for you? Revelation 3.7 says that Jesus can open doors that no man can shut. And he closes doors that no man can open. So he is able to accomplish everything that concerns you today. He can provide housing when it feels impossible. He can make a way to pay bills that feel unpayable. He is really able. He is God. He is over everything. He's able to give you wisdom or patience or endurance with a difficult child. He is strong enough, able enough to bring healing to a broken relationship, even a dead one. That's our God. He has answers and provision for your greatest fears and your greatest concerns right now. That's who he is. He's the God over everything. And you know, we turn so easily when we're overwhelmed and desperate and needy to other things. Sometimes they're unhealthy things, but sometimes they're even good things. Sometimes it's like hard work, wise planning, strong moral character, thinking that if I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and I'm wise enough and I plan well enough, then eventually all my difficult problems will be solved. But I think most of us have lived life long enough to know that that is not always true because Ladies, no matter how hard we try, we are not in control of our lives. But God is. We know the one who is in control of our lives. We know the one who is over everything. That should stir up all kinds of worship for him. Now, I know that truth can also be a little bit of a challenge. Some of us in this room, we're confident in God's ability. We know God's able. We believe it. We believe he's powerful. But the hard part comes when he doesn't always do what we're asking him to do. So what do we do with that? If God's able but he's not doing it, what do I do with that? Well, that's going to lead us into the next thing that I think makes God the God, the only God. God wants us to know who he is, right? So we can worship him and love him rightly. Well, the next thing I want us to think about is God's holiness. Revelation 4 says that in the throne room of heaven, there are four creatures. And day and night, nonstop, they're circling around the throne. And what are they saying? I bet you know. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in Isaiah 6, God, he gave a prophet named Isaiah a vision of himself. And he was sitting on this throne in heaven, very similar. And right there, again, there were creatures and they were flying around the throne room of heaven. And what were they saying? They were saying the same thing. Holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, what does holy really mean? I mean, it's important to recognize that holy is the only description that's given about God three times like that. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says God is loving, loving, loving. And he's super loving. Nowhere does it say he's patient, patient, patient. The only description that's given three times like that is when it's talking about God's holiness. That's God's way of emphasizing it for us. It's his way of expressing that his holiness is whole. It's total. It's complete. It's his chief characteristic. He's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And if we're to know him so that we can love him, we have got to understand what this holiness means. Richard Lintz, in his essay on the holiness of God for the Gospel Coalition, he has a great definition, and this is what he says. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. That's it. So God is completely, thoroughly, entirely, morally good. He's perfect. And that makes him totally different from us. So I know that could be a little intimidating, that God is so good and perfect. And it should rightly kind of cause us to be in awe or reverence, have a good, right, proper fear of the one who is so good and so pure. But man, I'm telling you, if you really think about this, it makes you love him. It really stirs up your love. Think about it. The one and only, all-powerful creator of the universe, the one who is in control of everything, is totally, wholly, and completely perfect. Everything he does and does not do, everything he allows and does not allow, everything he commands, everything he teaches, it all stems from his absolute whole total moral goodness, his perfection. Maybe another way to think about it is nothing he has ever done or ever will do is motivated by anything bad. No selfishness, no pride, no greed, no lust, no bitterness, no hypercriticalness. No, he is always altogether completely good. He is the only God because he's holy. And when I look at myself, if I'm honest, I can see my unholiness. And it's kind of disappointing. I can see my selfishness and my unkindness and my lack of love or gentleness. And when I look at family or friends, even the really great best of people, I see the same thing. Sometimes I'm even let down, right, or hurt by their unholiness. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been even surprised and hurt by a really good person making a bad choice? Maybe they lied to you or did something that surprised you. You were like, what? I, I was not expecting that from you. Maybe someone you love or look up to is impatient with you or angry with you. And gosh, it hurts. Maybe a friend that you thought was something else 
says something in a conversation in a group, and you're like, gosh, I really, I thought you loved Jesus. I didn't, I didn't know you thought that way. I thought you, you loved people. That's, I'm disappointed. The truth is that we're all battling sin daily. So I'm going to let people down. You're going to let people down. We're all going to let people down. Even the best, most godly of us will. And our sin, it affects each other. But here's the beautiful thing. God, you can look at him and you will never be disappointed. You can fix your eyes on him and you can see total goodness, total love, complete selflessness, whole and absolute justice. God's holy, holy, holiness is what makes him the most beautiful and the most trustworthy thing in the universe. And I hope you can lean into that truth tonight and even in the weeks ahead. Take time. Take time to think about the beauty of the holiness of God. Anything that he does not do, that we ask him to do, it has to be good. good. It must be good for a reason because everything he does comes from his moral goodness. And how good that we get to know the one who will never fail. He will, people will let us down, but Jesus, God, he will never let us down. He's holy. He will always and completely be entirely and totally good. Different from anyone we've ever known. That's who he is. And man, when I meditate on that, my love for him, it's just stirred up over and over again. So we've thought about those two like big characteristics, these two things that make God God, right? And Jesus wanted to know, wanted us to know who he is that we might love him. We looked at the awesomeness of his power and the beauty of his holiness, how no one can compare. But there's one more thing that Jesus said about himself. Remember, he is the only God and he is our God. Jesus wants us to know that he's ours. He's not just the only God, he's our God. That reality That might awaken your affections for him like nothing else can. How is it possible? How can the God that's so powerful and so pure and so good, how can he be our God? Let's just talk about the gospel for a minute. That's how. The Bible says that God is so good. He's so perfect. He's so holy. He can't even be in the presence of anything that's not. The Bible says that we are not entirely good or perfect or holy. Nope. Our sin, our moral unholiness, is actually so deep, the Bible says, that we're slaves to it and that it has separated us from God. But God, we've said that a lot tonight, but God, who, listen to this, is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together in Christ. The God because of his great love for us, became our God. Now, when we're talking about the gospel, there are lots of super valuable things that could be emphasized. You could study the gospel for days. We could talk about the depths of our sin. 
and that would be really meaningful. We could talk about the incredible holiness of God. We just scratched the surface there for a minute. You could talk about the intense sacrifice that God made in order to become our God. We could talk about what we gain as his kids. But tonight, I just want to focus on one thing. I want to focus on the part of the gospel, his motivation. Why? Why did the God become our God? It's right there in that Ephesians verse. It says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love. Because of his great love for us. Do you know how much God loves you? He wants you to know it. He wants you to know it. He attached it to the first commandment. He is our God because he loves you. He wants you to know his love for you before you respond in love to him. He's our God because he loves us. He is not our God because we deserved it. No, not because we were so irresistibly beautiful or good. Romans 5.8 says that God showed his love for us while we were still sinners, right? And he's not our God because he's some good moral creature and he's performing some perfunctory moral necessity that he has to make a way to be ours. Nah, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, which is what we had, is death. In other words, what would be morally right would be for us to die. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loved the world so he could be our God. And do you know what his love is like? I mean, it's screaming out right there at the cross. But his love for you, it's a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Listen to this. It's patient. It's kind. It's gentle. It's polite. It only thinks good things. It's selfless. It's able to bear anything. His love for you is able to believe anything, endure anything, and it never fails. His love for you is like, in, it's, his love for you is in Ephesians 3 love. It's so beautiful, it's so deep, and it's so wide, and it's so long. His love for you, it's so high that it is impossible to fully understand. His love for you is so persistent, it's so unending that nothing can separate you from it. That's what Romans 8 tells us. The gospel, it proves his love for us again and again and again. He dealt with our sin that separated us from him forever. He became our God. Why? Because he loves us. And you guys, nothing can match this love of God. No love of a parent, no love of a friend, no love of a boyfriend or a husband. No one can love you like God can. No one. Now here's something to think about. I think it's the combination of these three truths that gets us seeing God properly. If we only see God as awesome in power and holy, but we don't deeply know his love for us, we're, he's being misrepresented. I hate being misrepresented. It's like the core of all my marriage arguments. I hate being misrepresented. And God does too. 
He doesn't want us to know him only for his power and his holiness. If we do, we might have respectful worship, but it will probably be cold and distant. That's not what he, he, who he is at all, and that's not all that he wants us to know about him. If, on the other hand, he's only our God, like we only know his love for us, but we separate it from his power and his holiness, well, that's a misrepresentation too. And then our worship of him, it becomes kind of flimsy and self-centered and indulgent. No, it's like the intertwining of these three things that best represent who he really is and why he is really worthy of our all-out total devotion. Mary, Jesus' mother, after the angel visited her when she was pregnant and told her she was pregnant with Jesus, she sang this song, and I'm not going to quote the whole thing for you, but the first verse, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And then a couple verses down, she says this, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary got it. She saw his might. She saw his holiness. But she also knew that God was hers. He was her savior. He had done great things for her. This is how God wants us to walk through life. He wants us to know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He wants us to know he is all-powerful, he is completely holy, and he loves us entirely. This is our God. Now, for the last chunk of minutes that we have together, we're going to look at the life of Mary. Not Mary, Jesus' mother, but another Mary. And she is a woman who's a great example of our whole passage tonight. In a way, she deeply understood Jesus' power and holiness and his love for her. She didn't have all of scripture to tell her who he was, but she knew from being with him. And she responded to this understanding of him with total worship and total love. I mean, so... The second part of our scripture that we haven't even touched on really tonight, see what Jesus said? It says, Hear, O Israel, then the the next part. It says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the most important thing we can do with our entire life. It's attached to that first commandment. So when we realize who he is, then we will be able to love him with all that we are. Mary loved Jesus with all that she was. She loved him with all her mind. She sat at his feet and she took in his every word. Maybe you know the story. Her sister Martha was scrambling around while Jesus came for a visit, but Mary sat humbly, intimately, right there at Jesus' feet, taking in his every word. And Jesus even said she had chosen the best, most important thing in that moment. Loving God with her whole mind, it meant humbling herself before him. But remembering the closeness she had with him, the access that she could just be right there at his feet. It meant that she would make his words the priority of her moment. And she, it also meant that she listened. She, actually, she didn't just sit there, she actually took in what he said. Because Mary knew who Jesus was, she loved him with her whole mind. Mary loved Jesus with her whole soul. 
when she cried out to him over the death of her brother, Lazarus. Do you know this story? Lazarus was sick, her brother, and Mary sent a message to Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, asking him to come help, but Lazarus died and Jesus hadn't shown up yet. By the time Jesus showed up, Lazarus had been buried for four days. And from far away, Mary sees Jesus coming and she runs out to meet him. She falls at his feet. She is weeping and crying. And she even cries out to him and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. You guys, this is not a picture of a controlled, measured, put together woman making logical mental choice to obey and a command to love God. No, this is a woman who's so confident in God's complete love for her and so confident in his power that she just pours all of her emotions out right there at his feet. She tells him honestly everything she's feeling and thinking. She entrusts her most vulnerable thoughts and feelings to Jesus because she knows he can handle them and only he can handle them. She loved him with her whole soul. In another episode Mary's, of Mary's life, we see her love Jesus with all of her heart and all of her strength. She's having a family gathering with Jesus and his disciples. They're all over for dinner again. And after dinner, I bet you might know this story, she takes out a very expensive um, jar of oil. It's worth a whole year's worth of salary. And she pours it all over Jesus' feet. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the whole room starts to smell of this, this special oil. And the disciples even complain that the oil should have been sold to the poor. But Jesus defends her, right? And he says she did a good thing. And she, he says she did what she could. And she anointed him for burial. If Mary loved Jesus with her soul, if her soul was all of her emotions, her heart, was all of her devotion. She gave him all of her devotion. By pouring out a year's worth of wages, Mary was saying with her actions, Jesus, you're more important than anything else. You're more important than myself, my future comfort or security. You're more important than even a noble cause like the poor. Because she knew his power and his holiness and his love for her she decided that he alone was worthy of her sacrifice and her devotion. Mary loved Jesus with her whole heart. And then, did you notice what Jesus said about her in that story? I said it. He said she had done what she could. Mary loved Jesus with all of her strength because she did what she could. Not more and not less. She did what she could for Jesus. What was in her capacity to give him, she did that. She gave him all the fragrant oil. She anointed him for burial. This is what she could do. This is what she did, not in part, but whole. She gave the whole thing. She loved God with all of her strength. Mary knew Jesus so well that she responded in this life of total devotion. She loved him with her heart and her mind and her soul and her strength. So we're just gonna wrap it up now. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us tonight? We've looked at this passage in Mark and we've learned that Jesus wants us to know him so that we can love him. And we've talked about how worthy he is of our love. He's worthy because of his great power, 
and he's worthy because of his beautiful holiness and he's worthy because of our, his amazing love for us. And then we looked really quickly at Mary, at these little snapshots. She's like a real Jesus famous kind of woman, right? <laughs> and she gave us some great pictures of a person living their life in response to who Jesus is. So what about us? Here's what I want to encourage you with tonight. This is it. Pursue knowing Jesus. I mean, we have barely scratched the surface tonight on seeing who he is. The Bible is so full of revelation of who God is. Like if we spent every minute of the rest of our lives studying it, there would still be more to know about God. Pursue knowing Jesus. Like Mary, be confident in his love for you, but have full humility. Make him the priority. Pursue knowing Jesus. Make it the greatest effort of your life. I think over time, the better we know him, more and more and more, the more we will become those Jesus famous women who live the entirety of our lives responding, like Nate said, to Christ's great goodness and gospel. Can I pray for you? All right. <clears throat> Jesus, you are worthy. Man, when we were singing that song tonight, I was like, that is the perfect song for this moment. You are worthy of our study. You are worthy of knowing. There is so much to know about you. You are so good, and you are so holy, and you are so powerful, and you love us so much. And gosh, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we would be able in some way to comprehend the depth and the width and the height and the length of your love for us, that we would be able to comprehend in greater and greater ways how good you are and how good it is for us to know the one that is all-powerful and in control of everything and totally perfect. God, just open the eyes of our heart to see this more. I pray for every woman here and for myself too. God, show us what it looks like in our lives right now to pursue you, to pursue knowing you. Maybe a little bit more, a little more intentionally, a little more specifically. Lord, show us what it means to pursue knowing you because you're worth it. You're so worth it. And we want to live those lives of love that respond to your goodness and your holiness and your love. So help us to see you, Lord. Help us to know you and help us to see ways that we can pursue you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.